Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. everyone to the start of our brand new series, Man Made, which is a series about men. It is by men. It is for men, hopefully of interest to men and to women as well. Uh, Masculinity. What makes a man a man? Uh, Speaking of that guy in the opening uh, video, incredible, right? Pumped up, buff looking. I think everyone knows that's Pastor Tom. Uh, You can see that there. Awesome. Uh, Quick survey. How many men do we have with us? Let me see hands just real quick. Men, you are of that gender. Check in that box. Women, how many women do we have who know a man? You know uh, you have maybe one of your family, you work with one, okay, so-so there. This series is for everybody who raised their hands. Um, guys, dudes, bros, whatever you want to call them, men play pivotal roles really in all of our lives. They are fathers, they are husbands, they are sons, boyfriends, uh, brothers, providers, mentors, leaders. We all know men, some who are confident and others who are a little bit controlling. Uh, some men are inspiring and others are insecure. And the question we're asking is, what makes a man a man? I mean, how would you answer that question? What distinguishes, for instance, a boy from a man? Is it just a matter of age? Like someday you just magically grow up and you're a man. We've probably noticed boys don't magically become men. We all know guys who, by virtue of their age, they, they, they qualify uh, as a man. Uh, but it's a little hard to pull off when you're 38, living in your parents' basement, playing Xbox. Right? It's a little bit difficult there. Boys don't equal men, so, so what is it? Is it biology? Uh, is man just the opposite of a woman? Um, we, again, know guys who can check, uh, you know, male on a census, but, but either in, in relation to women, they're either cowardly, actually afraid of women, or they're chauvinists. They run them over. Neither age nor gender make a man, so what does? Here's the deal. In the 50s, when you, if, if you grew up in the 50s, it was a pretty straightforward answer. Uh, to be a man meant one thing. You took responsibility uh, for yourself, for your family, for your community, maybe for your church. And the path to manhood was well lit, and there were plenty of mile markers. You grew up in your family home, typically with with two parents. You had a a father who who loved and disciplined and kind of mentored you. But then once you hit 17 or 18, you left the house, and you either went off to school or you learned how to make a living. In the 19th century, that was farming or factory work. In the 50s, more corporate kind of thing. Um, Then you got married, you found a woman, kind of reeled her in, usually by like 21 years old or 22, established your own home and started your own family. Maybe you became a father. All of that would have been in your early 20s, and then you would have spent your 30s and 40s just kind of raising your kids and loving your wife, working a job or two. Being a man meant assuming increasing responsibilities and living by something of a masculine code. It's probably best summed up in that that famous motto from the Marines. You know it? Semper Fi. You know what that means? 
Latin, whoa, well, the Marines are here. Latin for always faithful. A man was seen as strong, as noble. He was willing to sacrifice himself for something larger than just his life. He was going to spend himself building, defending, fighting for the people and things that he had a commitment to. Um, do you guys remember, I don't know if you remember this, the Marines commercial, we're looking for a few good men. You remember that? Some of you ladies are like, I just need one. I'll just, just that'd be great. Uh, if you haven't noticed, good men are in short supply, uh, not only in our culture, but in the church as well. And the signs of a man-made crisis are really all around us. Uh, according to a recent Newsweek article, uh, more and more young men are opting out of the responsibilities of adulthood and taking a tour, a detour in Guyland. It's, it's the name of a fascinating book by sociologist Michael Kimmel. It describes the strange new world of 20 and 30-somethings where Peter Pans of all ages get to hit the pause button on the path to adulthood and instead take a prolonged adolescence in Guyland. See if this sounds familiar. It's Thursday night at a rented beach house full of vacationing guys. The music is pumping and they're kicking off their nightly binge. Between tequila shots and pulls of beer, the sun-baked 20-somethings roar at the girls who walk by and tell tales of manly courage, let's grill that thing, of sexual conquest, I do her. And together, they escape the monotony and rehearse the familiar rituals of Guyland. It kind of gets you longing for the Jersey Shore, doesn't it? It's kind of a nice... According to New, uh, Newsweek, Guyland is that new in-between stage where a, a dude is kind of no longer a boy. He's out of his teens. He's probably out of school. But he's not quite a man either. He's, he's a guy. He's a buddy. He's a bro. And according to this report, the traditional markers of manhood, of leaving home, of finding a wife, of getting a job, of becoming a father, have moved way downfield for the current generation. Um, this one guy says, I like starting things, one man says, as if to sum up his generation. Then it gets boring. In other words, this is the guy who's 33. He's living at home. He's working on his undergrad. He's on the nine-year plan. He's living in his parents' basement in a duct-tape beanbag chair playing, you know, Grand Theft Auto kind of thing. Research kind of bears this out. In 1960, almost 70% of men had reached those milestones, had, 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 had gainfully employed, they were married by the age of 30. Today, in 2010, less than one-third of all guys can say the same thing. Kimmel tells Newsweek, what used to be regressive weekends of, of immature boyish behavior are now what? Whole years in the lives of some guys. Uh, I am 39, and uh, when I look at the, how the... Oh, thank you. <laughs> Over the hill. Uh, when I see how the vast majority of my buddies from high school are spending their late 30s, early 40s, it's downright depressing. Did a little research this week. I went on Facebook to just see their status updates, and I thought, I was like, lost years, more like lost decades. Um, one of my buddies had on his status, had just broke up with Chrissy again. That was his girlfriend from high school. This is a guy who's 37. He lives with his mom. He sells baseball cards for a living. Out of my five closest friends, nothing about baseball cards, my five closest friends, only two of them are currently married. Uh, one of the guys who I played sports with, he wrote, can't wait for the weekend getting wasted in NYC. And I read that and thought, oh, Ken was always such a dreamer. <laughs> you know, like, it, like as if nothing has changed in 20 years. He could have posted that his junior year, left it up for two decades. Like nothing would have changed. Another guy had playing, playing, playing Guitar Heroes with my bros, you know, like 20 years ago, it was Space Invaders. It's all the same, only the games have changed. The lack of purpose, the lack of progress, I'm sure you've seen it yourself, it's a failure to launch 
on an epic kind of level. Um, I, instead of being kind of this traditional, you know, it's like a transitional moment it used to be from adolescence to adulthood, Guyland, it's like a phenomenon, they're saying. It's a whole new stage where boys of any age can, can put off responsibilities of manhood as long as possible. And that man-made crisis is evident all throughout our culture. One of uh, the movies last year that hit it big with male audiences was The Hangover. Did you, did you see this at all? Uh, which featured 20, 30-something dudes. They're on a weekend before one of them is going to get married, and they all have you know, advice. They all have angst about, no, dude, you're making a mistake, man. So to muster up some clarity and some courage uh, for that sacred rite of passage, they take a time out and do what all guys do. They go to Vegas. You want to go to Vegas without me? That is totally cool. What are you talking about? Well, you know, Phil and Stu, they're your buddies, and it's your bachelor party, and those two love you. Boys and their bachelor parties, it's gross. It is gross. I just wish your friends were as mature as you. They are mature, actually. You just have to get to know them better. Paging Dr. Bag. This is Vegas. Do a night. We'll never forget. Uh, what happened last night? Am I missing a tooth? Oh. <laughs> Whose baby is that? Check its collar or something. I looked everywhere. Nobody's seen Doug. I don't think I've ever been this hungover. What's on your arm? You were in the hospital last night. <laughs> <laughs> the only important thing now is that we find Doug. Where's your car, officers? Oh, God. I think it was just you guys and one other guy. Was he okay? He was fine. Just whacked out of his mind. <laughs> we were messed up. Is there anything you can tell us about what may have happened last night? Congratulations, dude. You got married. She is wearing my grandmother's Holocaust ring. I didn't know they give out rings at the Holocaust. These gentlemen volunteered to demonstrate how a stun gun is used to subdue a suspect. Wait, Wait, what? What? Stop! In the face! In the face! Sure, you're qualified to be taking care of that baby. Oh my God! We're getting married in five hours. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. It'd be funnier if it was only a lost weekend, but according to Newsweek, it's more like a lost decade for guys today. Women, whatever, they come and go, kind of a sport. Uh, commitment, we go the other way. Morality, hey, we all know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. All right, the men are here. The hangover is a good description, honestly, of young adulthood today because it's like for all its hype and good times, when all is said and done, you can't quite remember what you did or you spent your money on. There's this whole lot of regret for stupid stuff you spent wasting your time on that got you nowhere. It's kind of movement and noise with the illusion of progress. You think our generation has a hangover? Check this out. Since 1970, the percentage of guys moving back in with their parents has doubled. There are more guys cohabitating in the last five years that is living with women, not actually marrying them, than any previous decade. So that is a social norm now. And it's like, no wonder Guyland seems like a good option. It's like the rent is free, so is the sex. Uh, the past five years has featured a spike in fathers with no chil or children uh, with no fathers in the home, this kind of epidemic of dudes without dads. It continues. 
That's like a key part of this crisis. Masculinity, here's the deal. It can only be bestowed by another man. A mother cannot initiate a boy into manhood. And when a father isn't there, a boy will find young men to fill that gap. That's why gangs exist. Boys instinctively know they need other men to learn from what life is about. So this is a man-made crisis, folks, and it affects everything from the workforce to women to family, the church, all the foundations of a stable society. Uh, The Newsweek report concludes this. It says, today's guys are perhaps the first downwardly mobile and endlessly adolescent generation of men in U.S. history. They're also among the most distraught. Men between ages of 16 and 26 have the highest suicide rate for any group except men above 70. That's sobering stuff. Maybe Peter Pan isn't all it's cracked up to be. And that's really why we're doing this series, to answer the question, what makes a man a man? For those who have lost their way, perhaps in Guyland, and are looking for directions. The short answer, the biblical answer to what makes a man a man is that God makes a man in his image no less, which means he is built with strength and power. He actually has the capacity to to create and nurture and lead and uses God-given strength, offers strength, not weakness, to a woman. And that strength to defend and help those in our world who are weaker and more vulnerable. And a man, when you see a man who's like whole and healthy and mature and like self-confident, it's like a glorious thing to behold. It really is. I need to tell you this and say it up front. I'm a big fan of men. Uh, I am one, in fact. Um, So here's the deal, guys. My goal is not to kick you in the batteries, okay, just so that you feel bad. My goal is to give you a biblically-based portrait of how God designed men, what authentic masculinity really looks like in in, in the areas that you're called to build, defend, and fight for, whether it's your work or a relationship, your your business, your family. It's about leadership. So here's the deal. If you are uh, single uh, and you're here and, uh, and, and you're hoping to be married someday, awesome, buckle up. This is boot camp for you, and I'm going to shoot straight and, uh, and try, hopefully challenge you. If you're married, good for you. I applaud that. But you've got to know, it doesn't automatically mean you are a man. In fact, there's going to be some stuff that we talk about that your wife and kids are probably going to be happy uh, you hear. And if you're a daddy, awesome. But now you've got the responsibility of actually raising, if you've got boys, teaching them what it means to be a man, or even more importantly, teaching your daughters what to look for in one. That is huge. And if you're an older man, which in our church is pretty much anyone over 40, uh, we, we are like, that's awesome too. More than anything, we need mentors and we need guys, role models, guys who have logged miles on the journey and have some wisdom and experience to share with the younger men here. So uh, ladies, here's the deal. Um, this is going to explain a lot for you, connect some dots, and I just want to be clear about this. This series is not about man bashing, okay? You're going to be disappointed if that's what you were hoping for. Rather, this is kind of like a privilege. You are going to get kind of an inside look at some of the issues that men wrestle with, and it's not so you can use it as ammo, ah, but so you can encourage, actually support, and, and show compassion for your brothers and make wise choices in your own relationships too. So when men are men, uh, women rejoice. <laughs> relationships get renewed. Families flourish. We actually have a, a series about women on the drawing board. We're calling it kind of soul sisters, uh, attentively. But we figured we'd start first with the man, really for one reason, That's how God himself begins in Genesis chapter 1. So let me invite you to take your Bible, turn to the first page, Genesis chapter 1. The first book of the Bible, Genesis means beginnings or origins. And how is a man made? How is he designed? What makes him tick? If he's built for strength, where does this weakness and and fear come from? What we're going to do is lay the groundwork here by looking at two key things that God gives a man at the outset of creation, work and a woman. 
a job to cultivate and a wife to care for. And the first thing we learn is about man is that he's divinely designed. You probably know this if you spent time in church. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Here's the deal. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. You can write that in the text there. It's spelled A-D-A-M. How do we pronounce that? Adam. That's Hebrew for man. It's the name God gave to the first man, your earthly father. Man or Adam is created in the image of God. The Greek word for image is icon. You guys know what an icon is? Remember this? A little mini representation of something. In this case, the creator himself. Now the specific process by which God makes the man is described in chapter 2 verse 7. It says the Lord God formed the man from what? From the the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So what's man made out of? Literally, dust and divinity. (laughs) That should create a profound sense of humility on one hand. We're nothing but dirt. Women are like, well, this explains a whole lot. I just, you know, on the other hand, tremendous dignity because we've got the, what, the, the pneuma, the breath of God inside of us. That is, that is incredible to think about. The Heavenly Father goes into Adam and he comes to life physically, spiritually, comes alive. So men, you have to understand this. You are literally a divine creation. You are inspired by the infinite. You are his icon. Dust, humility, divinity, tremendous dignity, on the other hand. Adam takes his first breath and what does God do next? He gives him a job. Look at this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and take care of it. In other words, from the beginning of creation, men are wired to what? To work. The actual original language is cultivators. God puts Adam in a garden. It's like wild, untamed land. He says, work it, cultivate it, take care of it. Bring order and stability to this this environment. So this is one of the reasons a man's identity is so closely tied to his work, his job, his career. When two guys get together, what's the first question? So what do you do, right? Whether it's, whether it's construction or, or teaching or running a business or practicing medicine, guys are cultivators. They like to build and organize things just like God does. And he says, this is very, very good. This is a key part of the masculine identity. Men, um, you, you, you probably see this once it's, it's think men establish things, they build something, they want it to grow or make it better. You'll see this in simple ways. Um, some guys like to cultivate their body, right? They like to work out. He's not, not me. The guy in the, in, the, in the opening video, obviously, Jim, woo, man, physical, that's incredible, right? They, they, they're, they're competitive. Some guys are very competitive. Some guys do this with their house. They always got to fix something even if nothing's broken, right? Demo it, take it apart, make it better. They have a car, a motorcycle. I have this one friend who has a motorcycle. I've never seen him ride it because he's always taking the part in the garage. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? He's like, nothing. It just doesn't go fast enough. So what are you doing? I'm putting on alloy spokes on, I'm trimming the mirror, and they, they always want to make an upgrade. It's, and I'm not just, I don't just mean like, you know, manly, you know, cliched stuff. I'm talking not just blue collar, I mean like, um, uh, like if guys like computers, right? If a guy gets a computer, what's the first thing he wants to do? Upgrade! Time for an upgrade, you got it. Bigger, better, faster, the speakers are too small, the memory's too slow, we got to make this whole thing over. It's an incredible thing, but guys, guys don't just like gadgets because they're shiny, they're cultivators. They like to work with tools and make it better. If a guy is right-brained, he's an artist, he's a musician, he wants to learn new songs, he wants to write his own, he wants to play at a new place, constantly working on his technique. You give a guy a business and he wants it to grow. If it doesn't grow, he freaks out. So we see very early here, God wired men to work and cultivate things, and that includes, for instance, your marriage. You cultivate the woman. 
you love, you encourage, you build up your wife so she's like a fruitful vine, like Proverbs says. Men, men are supposed to cultivate their children. They're supposed to pour into them wisdom, discipline, courage, as they, they grow and mature and, and progress. Whatever realm God places a man into, family, home, business, church, whatever, they're wired to work on it and grow it. The problem is, if a man doesn't have a job to do, he cultivates the wrong things. He falls into sin or folly or the, or, or the usual stupid stuff of Guyland. Going out, you know, with buddies to the bar for power hours, you know, back in college, you know, strip clubs. Endless hours, you know, watching Sports Center highlights over and over. No jobs. We're going to fantasy football. I have so much in the draft, you know, fantasy football escapism. Or he cultivates an addiction online like gambling or porn. Guyland, understand this, is literally the antithesis of the garden. It's a world into which Adam shrinks back from the God-given gift of work for one. Notice when God actually says, work it and take care of it, Adam doesn't say, uh, uh, just a sec, dude, I'm up to level 15 on Halo. Hold on, just wait. You know? I, I, personally, I think there are three big reasons that the current generation has such a problem with committing to a, to a job or a career. The first is they have unrealistic expectations. Uh, most young men have absolutely no understanding of the level of commitment and perseverance to develop a viable career. Uh, so just, I'm just going to talk candidates, man, we're just I'm talking straight. Uh, most of the 20-something guys I talk to are in total la-la land. Uh, everyone seems to be working on, like, I'm, I'm writing a movie script, or they want to be a famous actor, or I'm going to be starting my, I'm working on my own dot-com. That's why I'm on the Internet so much. They, they dork around the Internet and think, I, that's how Zuckerberg invented Facebook. I'm going to be a mogul, man. Maybe, maybe, or maybe you're just going to spend a lot of time on Hulu watching Saturday Night Live clips, okay? So many guys have these grandiose visions but no clue how to get there. And the reality is this, guys. Coming out of college, the expectations are way too high and unrealistic for a first job. Work is hard. That's why they call it work. You will not make much money at your first job. You will probably enter the job market at the very bottom where work is totally unfulfilling, it is boring, and it is badly paid. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is we now live in a culture of instant gratification. And so when their first job is not instantaneously fulfilling, the hours get long, right? It gets repetitious or stressful. You don't immediately advance. Some guys quit, others just get fired. That's why so many guys kind of drift from job to job. They actually have a name for it. The sociologists call it serial jobogamy. From, from, from making lattes, then to folding jeans, waiting tables at Applebee's, the, and the idea of perseverance, of actually working hard, sticking it out for future reward, it's, they're, they're like, next, this generation doesn't even resonate with them. I want you to listen to John. This is a 1992 Rutgers grad who told a journalist about his career cluelessness. He said, I had no idea what I wanted to do right out of college. I couldn't even picture myself doing anything because I was so clueless about what was out there. I had so little direction. The only thing that made it better was all my friends were in the same boat, so we'd come home at the end of our dead-end gigs, complain about it, and get drunk together. That's the hangover. It's epidemic. It, it, it's, it's, it's epidemic in younger guys. And, and honestly, a lot of guys feel like they're just treading water, waiting for the right job to magically present itself. If you're Christian, you rationalize it, and you say, oh, I'm waiting on God, I'm kind of praying about it. It doesn't work that way. A career is something you cultivate with hard work. You earn it, you're not entitled to it. Issue number two. I talk to a lot of guys who have this ridiculous, there's another way to say it, sense of entitlement. Like, like the world owes them something because of their sheer uniqueness. I'm like a snowflake. And, uh, 
I shouldn't have to lift a finger and no effort and my job should be financially rewarding, emotionally rich, and fulfill all my creative instincts and desires. Here's the deal. That's a totally great goal to have, but says who? Says who? For generation, men worked for one reason, to get a paycheck. Their focus was singularly on providing for their family, putting food on the table for their wife and kids. In other words, they worked to benefit others. It wasn't so narcissistic. So fulfilling a dream and emotional need, that was like a luxury generation couldn't afford. And there's still truth to that, Adam. It's still truth to that. It's a job. It will not fulfill every dream. It's supposed to give you a paycheck so you can move out of your parents' basement. The problem is, as this entitlement has gone up, the economy has gone down. This is the third problem. Uh, a lot of people in our generation saw our dad's jobs get downsized or outsourced. And we are the first generation of men where the income trajectory is actually downward. Between 1950 and 1970, men's earnings actually doubled. But since the late 70s, annual incomes for guys 25 through 34 dropped almost 25%. Only half of all Americans in their mid-20s right now today earn enough to support a family. That is sobering. The trend is actually downward mobility. So listen, guys, you will have to work very hard just to maintain the same level of income and lifestyle that you probably grew up with. That's the truth. The workforce has contracted. It means you may have to take a job you don't like. And here's the truth. Everybody hates aspects of their job. Can I get an amen? amen. Oh, oh, look at that. Oh, finally everyone awake. At some point, you will not like the hours. You will not like the demands that are put on you, how tired it makes you, the stress it creates. You'll have to do things that don't fit what I'm gifted to do. I'm thinking... After Adam's first week, he's coming home from the garden. His hands are dirty. His muscles are sore. At some point, the novelty of naming the animals wears off. Uh, let's go. Just call them all cheetahs. I don't need Just go. But it's the process by which God makes a man and forges his character on the anvil and reveals his larger purpose. Uh, personally speaking, I got out of college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was an English major. I was like, I just don't want to teach. I never want to be a pastor. And, uh, and so, my, so I went to work in the city, right? Live in New Jersey. Went to New York City editing media transcripts. And uh, I would I'd take, I'd get on, after a year of riding the bus, taking the path to Hoboken, realized, I, wow, I realized something. I hate commuting. I hate it. And I took a job substitute teaching. And it was sheerly to pay the bills. I will give you no, no that, that is the absolute truth. And I discovered, as I began substitute teaching in English classes, I actually, I actually like this. I, I kind of, uh, you read stories and you get to talk with kids and you, you paid for that? Like, really? Awesome. And I took my first job teaching middle school English, uh, and here's the truth. About halfway through the year, I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit because it got so hard. Uh, my supervisor was a 71-year-old woman. Her name was Jean Canning. And she said, Mr. she always called me Mr. Lucas, never Tim. Mr. Lucas, I'll see you tomorrow at 6.07. What's at 6.07? That's when I go over your lesson plans. We did, other teachers didn't have to be there till 6.45. I want to see you at 6.07. And for the first year, she'd go over my lesson plans with a fine-tooth comb, and I thought she was just being a nutcracker, and she did this for the whole year. And honestly, I was like, you know what? The only way I'm getting out of bed this morning is I'm, I'm quitting, so that's good news. I told myself that for at least half the year, it, but I didn't quit. I actually stuck it out. I eventually got promoted to the high school where I taught uh, you know, journalism, honors, English, media, and that was how I learned to use media and movies to communicate with 17-year-olds. Think of that. I didn't know. I would end up someday being a teaching pastor, but God used that whole process, 12 years, to mold, shape, refine me. I taught for 12 years, and that's how, that's how I learned to plan message series. We call those themed units in school, and use visual media. If I can teach 17-year-olds about Shakespeare, I can teach you about Jesus. Here we are. 
Sometimes people ask me, well, how did, you, how did you get to do what you do? It just seems so natural for you. Here's the answer. I spent my 20s staying up late grading crappy essays about mice and men, get, getting up at the crack of dawn for, so a 70-year-old woman could bust my batteries. I see that now. But at the time, it was hard, but the perseverance paid off. That's a key concept here, guys. James 1.4 says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be, what's the phrase here? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance is only necessary if there are frustrations, obstacles, struggles, setbacks, challenges that make you want to opt out or, or, or shrink back. It's the only reason you need it. And your willingness to actually push into them and actually trust God's in this process is what differentiates a lot of boys from men. Perseverance builds character. And perseverance has to finish its work in you so that you're mature and complete, not lacking anything. Eden was paradise, but God gave Adam a job to do. I, I know naming the animals got repetitious at some point, but he said, before I give you a woman, you got to show me you can work. Why? Because the woman is going to be even more work. Trust me. <laughs> Practical application, okay? Uh, if you're not in school, this doesn't matter if you're 22 or 52, you need a job. That's kind of God's word to you today. Unless there's health issue or disability or you have an arrangement, you, you do. You need to follow God's original command to Adam. Work it. Take care of it. Here's the deal. You may need to lower your expectations. Consider doing something you never thought you would do. I know that it's not self-esteem building. I'm just trying to be realistic here. You may need to confess you have a sense of entitlement and adjust your expectations to the realities of the new economy. In the garden... God said, work is what? Good for man. The only thing not good is his relational status. It's not good for him to be what? To be alone. I don't know if you picked up on this. You see when God says, um, let, us, let us, he uses the plural, make man in what? Our image. This, that's the first reference to the Trinity in, in the entire Bible right here in Genesis. In other words, God's literally defined by relationship. God lives in community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God has never been alone. And Adam was alone in the garden. God's like, not good. God made man in his image relationally oriented, like God himself. So he starts, what happens? He searches for a companion among the animals. Are you imagining this? Elephant, no, 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 no. Cheetah, very cool. That is cool. Uh, cats, big no. Um, dogs, close. Not enough. You know what? I will make a interesting word. What? helper suitable for him. Now, if you are a woman right now, a modern woman, this is pushing a big button for you, <laughs> isn't it? Just acknowledge that. Because, all right, just say it. Because, right, you're like, wait, that's the problem with men. If there were the Bible, for that matter, it's so chauvinistic. Everything is about men. God designed men in his image. He put them in charge. He gets the power authority. And what's he do? He plays guitar hero. A helper? I'm an afterthought. No wonder so many men treat women as doormats. See, chauvinism, it's as old as creation. That's what a lot of women say. Not true, not true. Look at this. What does the text tell us about Eve? God creates Adam from what? From the, the dust of the earth. But how does he create the woman? Watch this. Then the Lord God made a woman from what? From the rib he had taken out of the man. In other words, according to the Bible, where does Eve come from? She comes from right here, alongside of Adam. Get this? She's not behind him. That's called chauvinism. She's not out in front of him. That's called feminism. Biblically, she's right alongside Adam. They're equals. They complement one another. They don't compete. 
They don't dominate. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a right hand helping a left hand. With only one, It's not going to work if you don't have both hands. That's why it says helper. It's not a derogatory term. Psalm 118 says, the Lord is my helper. So it's make, this is not about male superiority. Man, me in charge. No. Both men and women are created equal in worth, value, dignity in God's eyes. But equality does not mean sameness. That's where our culture goes off the rails. They think it means the same. They, man and woman have different abilities and roles to play, and man's role here in Genesis is very clear. It is to provide, protect, cultivate, take care of Eve. She comes from his side. Husbands, that's why your, your wife likes to snuggle in there, okay? Get under your wing. That's home sweet home for her right here. Come on in. And Adam's strength is supposed to be a source of security for women, knowing that she will be led and protected and taken care of. That's why God gave Adam a job first, then he gives him a woman. And guess what? The second one is easier to get if you have the first one. All right? It, this is related. If you can't handle a job, you think God's going to trust you with one of his daughters, okay? I'm not, if, you're, if you're unemployed right now, don't feel the sting of that. I'm talking about chronic, like guys are just laid back. I don't care. I don't give a rip. I'm not even trying. There's a divine order being established here. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called what? Woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, this is very significant that Eve is called woman, not girl. Very significant. Why? Because women ask something very different from men. They actually demand responsibility and respect, which is the antithesis of Guyland. Girls live in Guyland. Girls are the fun, the flirtatious, the vampy. They go along with God's code of maturity and attempt just to be loved by them, hence the current hookup culture we kind of see on college campuses. You guys know what I'm talking about? Here's the deal, anyone over 27. Hookup is, is now the replacement for dating, okay? It's when you go to a party actually with friends, you have drinks, and then you meet a casual acquaintance or a new friend and you hook up, which can run the gamut from just kind of, you know, making out or to oral sex to intercourse. And the key feature of hooking up is that both guy and girl agree, it's implicit, no strings attached. There is no expectation of a phone call, of any further commitment than just hooking up, no relationship to follow. It's amazing to me, it, it, dating myself. When I was in college, we actually did go on dates. I actually called up my wife and said, what are you doing Friday night? It's like, they're like, dating in college is dead. It is totally inverted in one generation. You, you used to date to find a mate, and the idea with hooking up is now you mate to find a, a date, maybe somebody who then you'd, you'd like to get interested in. Hooking up is all about convenience, and those are the, pretty much the three views of relationships in our culture. Convenience, that's sex without commitment. Second view is contract. That's kind of secular marriage. When non-Christians marry, they're like, I think we need a legal binding agreement to kind of enforce this, uh, prenup, whatever it is. But the third view of marriage is, biblically, is that it's a covenant. It's primarily a spiritual endeavor. It's actually two people saying, we're going to be living counterculturally. We are mutually going to be surrendered first to God and then we are going to actually sacrifice, love, give, forgive one another, not based on legal obligation or convenience, but commitment to God. And the issue is, as with work, men always seek the path of least resistance. That's what sons of Adam do. That's easy. And many girls are willing to accommodate them. It's actually very, very disturbing. Uh, if you have ever seen Spike TV, uh, bills itself as the man's network, and their key show is Girls Gone Wild, a show where guys with video cameras actually follow girls on spring break or at campus parties, 
And in return for a free T-shirt, the Girls Gone Wild uh, ladies actually hike up their shirts and bare their breasts for the camera. It's, it's pretty much criminal. They actually invite them back. They have these big RVs that pull up on college campuses or down in Daytona. They get the girls to come into the bus and then film them doing things you can't even, you can't even believe that. It's nuts. Like, this is the fruit of female liberation. Girls Gone Wild had revenues of $40 million last year, and they are planning a chain of family-themed restaurants to rival Hooters. Girls are easy. They exist very easily in Guyland. Women are complex. They are not content with a hookup culture. They actually have something greater in mind. First thing they want actually is intimacy. They want to be known, right? That, you know that that's the biblical language for sex, for, for marital intimacy? And it says, it says uh, in Adam knew Eve, in, in intimacy, into me see. I want you to see me. I want you to know me. A woman wants to be known. She wants, she wants a family. The, the name Eve, you'll see in your footnotes, it means living. It refers to her capacity to bear children. Those are priorities for men and women, not boys or girls gone wild. So guys, here's the deal. If you want a girl... There are plenty out there. But if you want a woman, a wife, who wants to start a family, they're going to look for certain things in you. The first is this. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Rule number one, if you want a woman, you've got to move out of your parents' basement. Okay, this is just like kind of standard textbook. Right now, 20% of all 25-year-olds live at home, and that number is rapidly growing. We're kind of having the empty nest be refilled. And that's fine if you're in a transitional period. I did that real quickly out of college. But if you're serious about like manning up and, and finding Eve, you've you got to biblically leave mom and dads, okay? I did that before I married Colleen, and uh, it was not easy. My mom said, why do you want to do that? You have free meals. I do your laundry. I was like, I, that's why I want to do that. Uh, Billy Joel says, you're 21 and still your mother makes your bed. And that's just wrong, you know? It did not make economic sense. It was actually expensive, but, but instinctively I sensed something inside of me will fail to mature as a man if I don't learn what it's like to live independently before I get married. And I'm glad I did. You know why? Because if I didn't, I probably would have naturally transferred all sorts of mom responsibilities to my wife, Colleen. And that's the one thing you do not want, guys. You do not want a wife who's your mom, okay? Adam is to leave mom and dad and be united to his wife, and they will become, what's the phrase? One flesh. You leave, and then you cleave. One flesh. That's the biblical phrase for marriage. And this is kind of cool, because this is the first wedding on record in human history here in Genesis. Uh, it's an outdoor wedding. Um, <laughs> God the Father, yeah, walks his daughter Eve down the aisle and literally hands her over to Adam and says, care for her, cultivate her. And Adam is a one-woman man. Notice that God does not give him a Maxim magazine and say, pick your, pick, pick which one you want. He brings one man, one woman to one man. So guys, that means, translation, your standard of beauty is supposed to be one person, your spouse. That's your standard of beauty. That, that's part of being one flesh, a man's heart, his affection, his passion is for one woman, the one God gave him, the one he's married to. And this is going to be hard for a lot of guys, just candidly, because this... In Guyland, the snake in the garden for most men is porn. Are you surprised by this? Well, last verse we have time to look at. It says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's plenty of nakedness in Guyland. But unfortunately, there's plenty of shame too. Porn's a big deal uh, in Guyland. It actually revenues last year were 
to $14 billion, which is more than the annual revenues of CBS, NBC, and ABC combined. On the internet, porn has uh, increased in 1998, this is amazing, 14 million web pages. Now, 2010, 1.5 billion downloads per month. Okay, that's an 18, it's a 1,800% increase. Um, I picked up, I stopped by CVS on the way in. I said, let me go to CVS and I'll get a few men's magazines, okay? Um, I got, to, I got, to, I got, to, this is, this, this is amazing, I'll start here. I'm not even going to let you look at that too close up. That's GQ magazine, okay? That's amazing. You can kind of see. That would, have, that would have been behind the counter in like, you know, padlock about 20 years ago. Porn is mainstream now. Uh, you've got Maxim, you've got FHM, you've got GQ. Maxim, this is amazing. It actually comes, you hear that? It's in, it's in a bag next to the Skittles. It's in the candy section. Um, here's Esquire magazine. Kind of, kind of cool timing, a little serendipitous. Look at the lead article, How to Be a Man, 2010. An owner's manual for your brain, your heart, your balls. Yeah. So I'm just, I don't even know why we're doing the series. It's all right here. I'm just going to kind of, I'll put these in the lobby and fan them out for you, okay? In, in, all, in all of these, Eve is portrayed as the airbrushed ideal. She is always ready and willing. She's always orgasmic. She is completely satisfied and always wanting more. And that's the key. It makes it easy for guys because he doesn't have to do the work of actually winning a woman, of cultivating a relationship. It asks nothing of him morally, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally. It's instant gratification. Guys, what, the whole idea here is this is feeding your flesh, which saps your soul. All body, no soul. Which is a betrayal of sex in Genesis, because at its core, you see, God designed it as a primarily a spiritual activity. It is the ultimate giving of one's life to another person. I'm trusting you with my essence. You literally offer your body as a living sacrifice to your spouse. So, so in a hookup uh, or a porn binge, you either, you either do it solo, you don't know the other person, it's anonymous, that's the opposite of into me, see, I don't even know you. And the result for most men is intense shame, toxic shame, because they're going against their God-given design. Any... <laughs> Any dude who has used porn cannot afterwards say, man, I, wow, that was awesome. I feel like a man. He may feel relief. He may feel numb, but he doesn't feel like a man. It confirms he's still a boy. He's a poser who doesn't have the ability to woo, win, and actually cultivate a woman. And here's the deal. I don't, I don't even, it, this is not just physical. This is not just spiritual. There, there's, there's a chemical thing that happens here. When a husband and wife are together physically, it releases in the man's brain an opiate. You know what an opiate is? Like opium, a drug with an addictive quality. In other words, the satisfaction of release is like a literal bonding agent, like something is happening. So God intentionally hardwired men physically, chemically, to develop a very strong attachment to their wife through sex. If you've ever seen someone in the throes of like a heroin addiction, God's like, yeah, that's how, how into your spouse I want you to be without the side effects. So, so, so every time a man hooks up or he squanders his strength through porn, that chemical is literally firing away, bonding, cementing, connecting him, in effect, rewiring his brain in such a way that it expects and requires that same level of intensity every time. That's why porn is so crippling to Adam. Because when he meets a real woman or gets into bed with his wife, she looks nothing like the airbrushed Barbie and it introduces discontent, disappointment, dysfunction into the dynamic which the woman feels a mile away and then good luck keeping that fire going. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. 
Most guys and gals in our generation have no idea what that means or what it would even feel like. They have a mental Rolodex of images to access, so the idea of a, a one woman for life, that concept seems like a downgrade, not a gift from their Heavenly Father because they've only known convenience, not covenant love. That's why in the Bible, adultery is an issue of the heart because it's actually saying, I'm dissatisfied, God, with what you've given me. Verse 22 says, um, and God brought her to the man. Imagine if Adam said, well, this isn't what I expected. I, honest, I just got, I'm just saying, I was at CVS the other day, and uh, I was really hoping, for, you know, for bigger uh, eyes. I wanted to see eyes, so... <laughs> Husbands, your wife is your standard of beauty. If she's tall, you're into tall. If her hair is brown, you're into brown hair big time. If she's petite, you're into tiny. Whatever she is, that's what you're into. If you're single, you're struggling with purity, probably 70% of the guys here, let's just call it us, every man's battle, you need help and accountability, okay? And we're going to actually be making some resources available at the end of this series because it's a big deal for us. But this is pretty much it, guys. I look at this and I'm like, work and women, I, I didn't even get past like the first chapter of Genesis. Two key components of what it means to be a man made in the image of God. It takes work, it's hard, it's a battle, but you were built for it. God, God designed you, you're divinely d- designed. Do not go beating yourself up or, or, or despairing. Just, I'm trying to get you to be realistic. Marriage is hard, I will not lie to you. Once you get there, it is not smooth sailing. It, it, it takes a lot to cultivate intimacy, make her feel secure and taken care of. You enter kids into the equation, phew, gets even harder not to drift apart. You fall into ruts, selfish thinking. Purity remains a struggle. The battle with lust doesn't magically disappear. You've got you to fight every step of the way. What I'm saying is it requires sacrifice, which is the essence of what it means to be a man. Jesus is our ultimate model on this. What, what did Christ do for his bride? He took a spear to the side. He died for the church on a cross. That's leadership. That's masculine strength. In the New Testament, you're going to see next week, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. And he is our ultimate model for authentic masculinity. He is neither wimpy, okay, Peter, or dominating. He comes as a king and dies as a servant. He was never threatening, coercive, dominating, or manipulative. He simply served and was invitational. The cross is him getting up there and saying, I love you so much, I'm willing to die for you. And then he gives us freedom to decide whether we want to be in that relationship with him or not. That's our model, men. We're called to lead like Christ did. First to lead, first to bleed. Semper fi, always faithful. Amen? Let's go with a hooah. Hooah. Oh, there it is. All right. Next week, I'm going to give you guys some practical things about how we get out of Guyland and kind of on an authentic uh, ramp to masculinity. But let me pray for us right now, okay? Father, I am lifting up right now at every one of our campuses, all of the men, Father. I just pray for them right now. Father, they were born sons of Adam into sin, but you have called them to be sons of God. Thank you that you have made a way through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for being a man. Thank you for taking responsibility for our sin, for getting up at the cross and saying, I'll die for them. I love them so much. We look to you now for the strength we need to lead and be the men you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
good to be with you guys, and uh, we want to end today's service by giving you a, uh, really to give every man here a job to do. That's what we're wired for, and a mission, we have a mission where your strength is needed on behalf of women in a big way. Um, before I send you out, I'm just going to tell you about this. Uh, recently, Liquid has come into a relationship with an organization called Women Aware. It's a nonprofit battered women's shelter. And you guys know why a battered women's shelter exists for one reason. It's because men abuse their power and their strength. And they, they use it to dominate and brutalize the bone of their bones, flesh of the flesh. So as we started dialoguing with uh, this battered women's shelter, we realized this is the perfect opportunity for the men of Liquid to actually rise up and show the world that we can use our strength and power in a redemptive way and actually care for, cultivate, build up, nurture women and children like God designed us to do. So in three weeks, this series is going to culminate in a church-wide outreach on July 4th weekend, we're going to be repairing, renovating, and basically doing an extreme makeover of the battered women's shelter at Women's Aware. Here are the details. Hey guys, here today with Phyllis Adams, Executive Director of Women Aware, a battered women's shelter based in New Brunswick. Women Aware is an incredible nonprofit program serving victims and survivors of domestic violence all throughout Middlesex County. Tell me the story of how Women Aware got started. It actually started as community members coming together and saying, if a woman or a child needs a safe place to stay, they can sleep on my couch. Phyllis, obviously every woman has a unique story, but what's the typical profile of a client? Sure, many of our clients contact us by a accessing the hotline. We have clients as young as 20 years old, and our oldest client is actually in her late 70s. What are your biggest needs at the shelter? Our shelter is an old facility, and it gets a lot, a lot of wear and tear. We have many people coming in and out. We served over 18,000 meals last year. So we need general repairs, we need to keep everything updated, and we need it to be a comfortable and safe place for everyone who resides there. I'm here with Yesenia, who's the director of the Safe House. And Yesenia, there's a lot that needs repair, including yes. these steps. Yes, safety is our biggest concern. You know, we're very afraid of people getting hurt on these stairs. One of the needs that you have is replacing the fence? Yes, we need to make sure that the location is anonymous, that no one is able to see the children and the women that are here. Um, as you see here, the fence is already falling apart. Privacy is a big concern. Yes. Security Definitely. for the kids. One of the tough things of the safe house is the exposed garbage that's currently out here right now. And if you take a look, right behind me is the playground. So what we want to do is tidy up this whole area, particularly for the kids and their families. Well, one of the things I love to see is a seesaw right over here in this patch of grass. Our kids, they first walk in through that door right here, through that fence, um, and if there's a seesaw there, they'll look at that and they'll just liven up, and I think that'll really be awesome to have. We're also going to be doing some organizing inside the house. If you go down in the basement, that's where all the supplies are, the food, the pillows, the bedding. We're going to be putting up shelves, renovating the entire basement so it's safe for storage. If you take a look, there's everything from cigarettes. From cigarette packs to fire engines, we're going to make this a clean and safe place for the kids. I think we're going to be doing some landscaping as well, the uh, tomato garden. I think it's weeds. We're going to take that thing and do some gardening man's work. 
So the work of Women Aware is really changing lives. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, um, it definitely is. We just actually had our first human trafficking survivor. Um, she came to us after being in bondage for years in L.A. and she broke away and she made it to New York where um, someone helped her get to our agency. Um, and so this is the first time we're serving, um, like I said, a human trafficking survivor and that's huge. It's not just women who stay in your shelter. It's not just women who stay in our shelter. Just last month, we had 18 children at our shelter, and the majority of those children were male children. We do work with a lot of men. We work with a lot of boys who are impacted by this abuse. We actually just had this little guy come in um, after seeing his dad beat his mom over and over again. They finally freed themselves from that situation and uh, came here. And as soon as the little guy walked in, he said, can I live here forever? And that was amazing. Well, Phyllis, we're not just going to pray for you. We're privileged to serve you and the team here at Women Aware for the incredible work that they're doing. Liquid Church, let's change this shelter. Thank you so much, Phyllis. <laughs> really appreciate your work. Thank awesome. You. Thanks. Let's do this, guys. <laughs>
that was directly from your heart to someone in this room, I pray that's exactly what they would hear. They wouldn't hear my words or, or let my personality get in the way. Let them hear what you want them to hear. Lord, I pray for the women. I thank you, God, for the godly women in our church, for their patience, for their, their goodness, Father. I pray for their maturity, Father, the gaps that they have, the wounds that they have, the frustrations, insecurities, Father. We want to be built up in Christ. There's neither male nor female. It is, we're literally children of God, and that's what we pray for. Send us out now, Lord, with your blessing and in the Holy Spirit's strength. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.